17, we drop in to the prayer of our Lord in John 17. It might feel a little bit like getting dropped into the final stretch of the Preakness with your horse, just fresh out of the gate, trying to catch up to the other racehorses as they cross the finish line. Jesus is near the end of his journey, and here we are just dropping in to just a few verses of his final prayer for his disciples in John 17. So to get your your horse warmed up a bit, as it were, to to get you ready for the race and the journey through these texts, I want to remind you of a few things that are at play here in John 17. This prayer we come across in these verses is the culmination of a few hours of interaction between Jesus and his apostles in the upper room. They've been celebrating the Passover meal together. He has been instructing them with some final words, preparing them for his soon departure through death and burial, and trying to make them ready for when they will be on their own. Do you remember back in chapter 13 how John the Apostle frames this scene? John 13 and verse 1, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So everything in the upper room is an expression of the love of Christ for his apostles. He instructed them, he taught them, and now before he is arrested, he prays for them. In other words, a key fact or axiom about prayer in your life for others is that it is carried along by love. You are the best intercessor for others when you are the most loving toward others. Others. This is Jesus' example for us in the upper room. And then, just to get your minds and hearts continuing to be warmed up before we jump into our text, look at the end of 16. So we looked at the beginning of the upper room discourse, now the end. Verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this upper room begins with Jesus loving his disciples to the end. The upper room scene ends with Jesus telling them, in the world you'll have tribulation, but do not fear, in me you have peace, for I have overcome the world, therefore take heart. And so what does Jesus do next after he says that to them? Does he commend them for their strength? Does he instruct them in how to stand strong? Does he tell them how to fight the battle? No, he prays for them. He knows the weakness of their flesh. He knows the challenges that they'll face from the attacks of the enemy. And so he pleads with the Father on their behalf. The hour has come for him to be glorified through death, burial, and resurrection. And because he loves these men, and because he knows they'll face tribulation in his absence, he prays for them. This beautifully models for you and for me, then, how we ought to respond to living in a turbulent world which is opposed to everything we hold dear in our Lord. It hates him, and it hates you because you're in him. And this helps us know that we ought to have peace in the Lord, and we ought to take heart in that he has overcome the world. But I ask you, how do you know this peace? How do you take heart when the world opposes you at every turn? Well, the easiest answer is what Jesus does. What does he do? He prays. 
so too must we. We take heart in his overcoming victory by praying. Our success is not dependent upon our ability to fight the battle and to win. Our success, our faithfulness is dependent upon an almighty God. And so we run to him in humble, submissive prayer, and we beg of him for the grace needed. This is exactly what we saw about Jesus' prayer last week, right? Do you remember we saw why we should pray last week, modeled from Jesus' prayer in John 17? You remember that we should pray because we belong to God. So we should go to the one who owns us and ask for more grace. We should pray because we're in the world. He left us here. We should pray because he preserves us. Jesus preserved his apostles. It is God's work to continue preserving his church. And we should pray because we're on assignment. We have a job to do. And it's a job too big for any one of us or all of us together. We can't do it apart from his grace. And so we pray. And here we see the extension of that into what we should pray for. Not only does Jesus teach us why we should pray, but now in verses 11 to 19, he teaches us what we should pray for by how he prays for his disciples. So what does he pray for? Namely two things. He prays for their, their uh, purification and for their preservation. He prays for them to be preserved and kept, and he prays for them to be sanctified. We'll see in Verses 20 to 26, he also prays for their unity as he prays for the church at large. As your hearts then now are revved up and ready, dropped into this end of the race, race course situation, start reading with me. I'll read out loud. You read internally, John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, Jesus said, and you gave them to me, and, he, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they were not of the world." just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus' prayer in John 17 breaks down into three basic parts or sections, verses 1 through 5. He prays for himself, that he would be glorified by the Father. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate 11 apostles, soon to be 12. He prays for them that they would be preserved and purified, kept and sanctified. Then verses 20 to 26, he prays for those who would believe in Jesus through their testimony 
namely the church, who will follow in their wake, who will be built upon their foundation. He's praying there for you and for me. As he prays for his 11 disciples, his apostles, he is focused majorly on their preservation. We saw that in verses 11 to 16 in particular. And so what is it that we should pray for as we follow the model of our Lord? Well, we should pray for preservation. We should pray for preservation. Jesus, in praying for preservation, models for us how to pray for preservation. Like, what should we be concerned about in this issue of the Lord keeping us? Notice how Jesus does. He prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then verse 15, he asks the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prays for their preservation, namely that God will keep them in his name and that he will keep them from the evil one and that he will let them be or make them be one, even as Father and Son are one. Those three facets of Jesus' prayer for preservation answer three questions for us about this type of praying. Where, why, and how. So praying for preservation, preservation where? Where should they be preserved? Preservation, why? Why should they be preserved? And preservation, how? How is it that they should be preserved? Well, how does Jesus pray in light of these things? What's the where of Jesus' prayer in verse 11? Well, the where question is answered in the middle of verse 11. He prays that they would be kept in the Father's name. Before that, he addresses the Father in a, a title that is only here in all of Scripture, and it is Holy Father. You'll not find that description or that title given to our Lord any other place. Here, Jesus uniquely, as the Son, says, Holy Father. It's an intentional, obviously intentional and helpful title. Jesus is acknowledging by the title the very unique separateness of the Father. And it's on the grounds of the character and the nature of the Father that Jesus is making everything he says after this, all the requests to follow. Jesus is going to the the transcendent Holy One. He is compelled to bring his concerns to the highly exalted, separated from sin, uniquely sacred, far above all of his creation, enthroned above the heavens, maker and sustainer of it all. He is compelled to go to his Father and say, Holy Father. Jesus is not addressing his Father as something other than what Jesus himself is. Jesus is himself the Holy Son of God. He shares this perfection with his Father. They are both uniquely separated. But he's come as the the mediator between him and God for sinners. He's come to redeem them. And as he crosses the finish line of that saving work, he pleads with his holy Father in heaven to keep these men. But then the question is to keep them where? Well, he says, keep them in your name. And you could translate that, keep them by your name, as though it's the the mode of keeping, the, the method of keeping them is by your name. I think better it's to be kept in your name, the location, the the general sphere or category of where they are to be kept. And Jesus says, this is the name you have given me. Every word our Lord speaks matters, right? Every phrase he says is important. So he says, this is the name 
you have given to me. So he came as the Son in the name of the Father, this holy name as Holy Father, uniquely set apart, creator, sustainer, divine judge over all. We were told in the prologue of John's gospel that Jesus came to exegete the Father to the world, to make known the name, the character, the perfections, the attributes, the works, the words, the knowledge, the truth of this one he came to represent. And so he came as the word of God enfleshed in humanity. And he came perfectly representing the Father. He's the perfect emissary from heaven as the perfect exegete of the God of heaven. So the God whom no man can see nor fully know, Jesus truly and fully knows and comes to tell us about him. This is the name Jesus has been given to represent. And now he says, I'm returning, I'm leaving, I'm done. My mission is over. Your name has been rightly proclaimed. Your revelation has rightly been preached. I have exegeted you in all the ways you told me to, and now I'm returning to you. And so, Lord, Holy Father, keep these men in your name. Keep them in your name. What's he praying? Well, to cut to the chase, he's praying that God the Father would preserve them in their faith in this name. That's going to have all kinds of ramifications. They're going to, they're going to follow in the name of Jesus and in the name of the Father in their actions, in what they do. They're going to represent the Father to the world just like Jesus did. They're going to be Christians, Christ's representatives in the world. But before it ever means that, it first means that they would be kept in the name of the Father, that the Father would keep them in the family, that he would preserve them as his own. This, by the way, is the positive request for preservation. So remember, Jesus is praying for preservation. That's what we're talking about, that we would be preserved. There's three aspects of that prayer for preservation, the where, the why, and the how. The where is the positive. He's praying that, that the Father would keep them, protect them, and guard them in his unique work. And then in verse 15, we're going to see under the, the how, he's going to pray the negative side of that. Keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one's designs and devices. So he's praying to be kept in the name of the Father. So in a world where the, the dangers and deceptions and pitfalls attack these men's faith at every turn, Jesus rises above the moment and the pressure of the cross and goes to the only one who can actually do anything about this and takes it to the, the highest heights of above and beyond all creation in a divine realm beyond our comprehension. Jesus cuts through it all and has direct access to his Father and says, Holy Father, keep these men in your name. Now, this is especially a poignant prayer because there's one that has just left. Just minutes ago, there was a, a man in their midst who, who feigned loyalty to Jesus, who said he believed in Jesus, but who has proven to not actually have true saving faith. And that was according to Scripture so that Psalm 41 could be fulfilled, that one in their midst, one whom Jesus called friend, would raise up his heel against our Lord and turn on him and expose him and turn him over to the authorities. 
But still, these men have in their minds one who would turn against Jesus. They don't even understand fully all that Judas has done and all the betrayal that is here. But in light of Judas' betrayal, Jesus is praying, Lord, protect, preserve these men. Keep them in your name. Keep them believing. Sustain them in the faith. Jude, you remember Jude? He's the half-brother of our Lord. First antagonistic to Jesus as any good brother would be. Later as he is one to the truth by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, he then rises in the church and becomes a leader in the church and then writes a letter to the church. It's one of the most important letters in the New Testament because it makes so clear the battle we are in for truth. You remember how he talks about, I, I wanted to write you and talk about our common faith, but instead I have to, con- I have to call you to contend for the truth, right? So he says, this is how he starts his letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You see how he himself is convinced that the prayer of John 17 will indeed be answered by the Father. They are called by the Father before the foundation of the world. They're beloved in God. He set his love on them, sent his son for them, redeemed them from their sin, made them his own. And the promise here is that they will be kept for Jesus Christ. And then you remember how he ends the letter? Some of the most precious words in all of Scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is God's work. This is the Father's unique position and power and ability to preserve us in the faith and in the truth. It's a prayer for God to keep them separate and set apart in his name and for his purposes. It is a prayer for their own holy preservation rooted in God's holy perfection. And this then will produce the unique result at the end of verse 11 of unity in the faith. So if this Holy Father whom Jesus addresses in verse 11 keeps these disciples in his name, it will serve the purpose of them being one even as Father and Son are one. This answers the why question of Jesus' prayer. Why does he pray? For their preservation. He prays for preservation to serve a greater good, their unity in the faith. Which is so important because we live in a disjointed, disunited world. Filled with as many opinions as there are human minds and uh, options out there. And Jesus prays that they would be preserved and unified. They, They would be one in heart and mind and purpose. So follow the logic of our Lord. If they're kept loyal to the Lord's name by his power, then there will be a shared unity which abounds among them, which, by the way, he'll pray a lot more about in verses 23 and 24. We'll get there, or 22 and 23, I mean. But don't miss the progression before we get there of of how he prays here. Prays to his Holy Father, asks his Father to preserve his followers in the Father's name, producing them in holiness, which results in Unity, oneness, like what's shared in the Godhead. So, beloved, this forms the fountainhead of true unity in the church. 
It's a unity which we know is ours in Christ, settled by the Holy Father. It's not a unity that we minimize truth for the sake of getting along, which is often the thought of unity in the church. It's not a unity which demands conformity to some external standard of religious expression, which is also another common thought of of unity in the church. Rather, it's uniformity. No, this is a unity rooted in and flowing out of the holiness of God. It's his powerful work by his holiness to make us holy. And as he makes us holy, then we know this unity, this oneness, this shared like-mindedness of heart, mind, and soul. As we're sanctified by his truth and know more and more of his perfection, we're united in this unique oneness in the body of Christ. Notice it's also a unity which is already there. It's a oneness that is ours in Christ, not a oneness that we have to be made into. It's a oneness of the Holy Father in which we can now know and experience. So he prays, keep them in your name which you have given them, that they may be, and and it's a present active verb, may continually be one. Not so that they may be made one, they already are one in Christ. We know this in Romans 12 as Paul fleshes out the truths of the gospel as it relates to life in the church. He says you are members of one another in Christ. You're united in Christ and made members one of another. So we have a shared unity, oneness in the body of Christ by the power and work of Christ. It's a a oneness we know more and more as we are preserved by God in his holiness. And Jesus prays this, knowing that the world, the flesh, and the devil rise against all within the church in stern opposition to you individually and to us corporately. The world, the flesh, and the devil coordinating their efforts on any given day and any given moment to to attack the, the realities of brothers and sisters trying to faithfully walk through this world. Trying to fracture the church with sinful lusts in the individual. With errant doctrine in the midst of the body, with intimidating attacks of persecution from outside, with lures of temptations to compromise and and play nice with the worldly wisdom of the day, and with the constant pressure of the world to conform to it. See, Jesus knows that's going to happen ahead of time. And he prays for these men that they will be preserved in light of that. That by his Holy Father's power, they will be made holy and they will know Unity as they are kept in his name. This leads then to the question of how. How is it that they are to be preserved? He specifically prays for the Father to do this in a certain way. In verse 12, he essentially prays that the Father would do this just like the Son has already done this. And so Father and Son are united in their preserving work of of his apostles, his disciples. The Son has done it while He was here on earth with them, and now He turns it over to the Father before He ascends to the right hand of the Father. So He says in verse 12, He says that while I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of them, barring Judas, has, has fallen away. They all now are being delivered safely into the Father's hands by the Son. Remember in John, 28, excuse me, John 10, 28 and 29? 
when in the Good Shepherd narrative, the Good Shepherd preaching, Jesus talks about how if you are the Lord, you're kept in his hand, and not just in his hand, but also in the Father's hand, and none can snatch you from my hand or from the Father's hand. You're doubly secure. He is now saying, I'm delivering you safely to the Father. And in his prayer, in front of the disciples, they're listening to him pray this. He is now turning that responsibility over to his Holy Father and saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name, just as I kept them and just as I guarded them. Bring them safely home. Now I ask you, how is it that Jesus kept these disciples? How did he keep and guard them? And by asking that question, I'm asking you, how the Father will then keep and guard you, which will inform how you pray for him to keep and guard you. So how did the Son keep and guard you? Well, he protected them by his presence, right? Simply by being with them, he protected them. In fact, he became the the tip of the spear of every attack. All the attacks of Satan and all of his evil minions and the religious leaders empowered by deceptive doctrine of demons came against who? Jesus. And they tried inroads around sometimes with the disciples and, and asked them questions of their Lord. Why doesn't he baptize when John the Baptist does? And what's wrong with your master? And things like that. But Jesus was always the pinpoint of their opposition, their persecution, and their deceptive tactics. And as he faced much of that for them, now he says, I'm leaving. And that's been a major theme in the upper room. I'm leaving and you need to be ready. Because now the attack is going to turn on you. You now will become the visible representation of the work of God in the world. You will now be the tabernacle and temple of the presence of God in this world. And Satan hates you. And the world hates you. And your flesh, still inherent in you, hates you. And it will rise up and come after you and seek to destroy you. And you will be alone. But, Jesus said, you are not alone, right? I'm leaving, but you're not alone. I'm sending my spirit to be with you, to fill you, to be in you, to be ever present with you, to empower and equip you, to protect and keep you, to guide you through the the thorny knots of deceptive doctrine, to help you see the light of truth when the darkness of error is bearing down on your soul. I'm giving the spirit to you that when the the sinful lust of temptation rise up and seek to lure you away, the spirit will be there beckoning you with truth, calling you to walk in the way, the truth, and the life who is Christ our Lord. Jesus said, I am giving you my spirit. And he prays to the Father, protect them. Essentially, he's praying for the spirit's presence in his disciples. He also protected them by his words. He protected them with his presence, and then he protected them with his words. He spoke, and he defeated error and deception. He filled their hearts and minds with truth through his words. He exposed false belief systems, laid the plain truth of of divine perfection and, and workings and righteousness plainly before them. And says, this is the way, follow therein. And then Jesus protected them through prayer. Jesus had a unique window into the world of spiritual battle that was raging around these men, even before he left. So Luke records that for us in Luke 22. You probably have read this before. Luke 22, same upper room situation. 
Peter affirms his loyalty to the Lord and says, I would never, ever abandon you. He says, listen, Peter, you have no idea how severe the battle is. And Jesus opens a a window to to Peter and just shows him a little glimpse of, of how severe this attack for Peter's soul has been. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he goes on, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, our Lord did not pray a prayer. He was unsure of the answer. He prayed a prayer to his holy father to preserve Simon specifically from the attacks of Satan because he knew Satan uniquely wanted to destroy Simon Peter. And he, became, he came very close, did he not? Luring him three times to denounce that he even knew Jesus on the night of his arrest and trial. Sending him running away, weeping in tears for his betrayal of his Lord. Probably having thoughts like Judas did of self-destruction, don't you think? Don't you think this courageous, bold, dare I say, pride-filled man like Peter would be tempted in that moment, having failed the Lord so miserably, so publicly, and so in keeping with, with what Jesus had already told him would happen, to think, you know what, I am not useful to my Lord. It would be better for me to just be gone. Satan tried to sift this man like wheat to crush him. He was preserved, how? By the prayer of our Lord. This is what Jesus is doing in John 17. He's praying for their perseverance and believer. This is what Jesus is doing now for you. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for his saints. He is now at the right hand of the Father, having nearness in location and nearness of relationship and unity of heart and mind. Our Savior is beckoning the Father on your behalf for his preserving power, that you would see it through. That you would cross the finish line of faith. That you would not abandon your post. That you would not buy into the deceptive temptations of the world, the flesh, or the devil. That you would not be sifted like wheat and cast into the ash heap of history. But that you would fill the unique role given to you by your Redeemer God to do the good works he has given you to do. And he prays for you right now, evermore, that you would persevere. Friend, this perseverance is not dependent upon your ability or the strength of your faith. You are held fast by our Holy Father in heaven who listens to his Holy Son for your preservation. There's another aspect of this prayer of which Jesus teaches us how he expects the Father to protect us. He prays in verses 14 to 16 that they are not of the world. My my apostles are not of the world. And there's an evil one who dominates the world and he's coming after them. And so he prays to the Father, keep them from the evil one. Notice how Jesus prays for them. I know you know this text, but consider it with fresh eyes of faith. He states the the danger and the nature of that danger. And then he prays them through the danger instead of out of the danger. 
Brother or sister, if you, if you have not listened yet, tune in now and you can check back out when I'm done, but listen. If you get nothing else, get this. When Jesus is faced with the reality of a sin-cursed, devil-dominated world coming against his apostles, he prays them through it instead of out of it. All the problems and pains and difficulties that you face in this life can be traced directly back to living in a sin-cursed, devil-dominated world. Your sin or the sins of others. And how you ought pray for yourself and everyone else facing those troubles is like our Lord prays for his apostles. That we would make it through it not necessarily out of it. Our Lord, as he prays this, he's reflecting what he has already said about the evil one in John 10. He's the thief who comes to steal, to to deceive, and to destroy. He's always prowling about on the lookout, looking for another victim to devour with his deceptive devices. Jesus has identified Satan as the ruler of this world in chapter 12, chapter 14, and chapter 16. He wants us to understand this. John will tell us in his first letter, 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John will tell us in chapter 3 of 1 John that Cain was of the evil one. And what did Cain do? Oh, nothing less than hate and murder his brother. This is what it means for the world to lie in the power of the evil one. It, It makes hatred and murder and deception and opposition and persecution. The prayer of Jesus is that we are kept from that deception and from that destruction without being removed from it. One of the most common prayers of the saints in all of Scripture that's given a negative answer by our Lord is the prayer to be taken out of this world. Moses prayed it in Numbers 11. Just kill me. Elijah prayed it in 1 Kings 19. I'm alone. I'm the only prophet who stands on your name and for your truth. Just kill me. Jonah prayed it in Jonah chapter 4. So weighed down by the responsibility to preach the gospel and then seeing wicked people turn in faith, he couldn't bear it. Just kill me. Take me out of this world. Beloved, you are tempted to pray this every day particularly you older saints among us, as you face the the realities of a a decaying outer man, which convinces you one moment at a time that you are no longer useful to your Lord or anyone else. As you battle through the realities of that decaying outer man, you are tempted to beg God to let you go. Get me out of here. Take me away from here. Why is it that God did not remove Moses in Numbers 11? Why did he not grant the request of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and take his final breath? Why didn't he heed the plea of Jonah in Jonah 4 and remove him from this world? Well, because God still had good works appointed for these men to do. If Moses was taken out in Numbers 11, he couldn't have led the people through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. He couldn't have taught them out of the glorious book of Deuteronomy, his final sermon to this generation to inhabit the land. 
If Elijah had been removed, he couldn't have then invested in Elisha, who became his protege, understudy, and took the mantle of his prophetic office. If God had taken Jonah out in Jonah 4, Jonah could not have written the book, which we so often run to to see our own hearts exposed. A book that shows us how much we love ourselves and hate the lost and teaches us to relish the glory and grace and mercy of God so we'd be compelled to tell the world, look to Jesus and live. You see, God didn't kill them because he had things for them to do. You just took that breath because God has something for you to do. You're going to take the next one because God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Whether you're 18, fresh out of high school, with no idea what Monday looks like. Or you're 88, your life is about done, and you're not sure how to make it through Monday. You take that next breath because God has so ordained for you to live and serve him. And Jesus prays in light of that, Father, keep them. Preserve them. Do not take them out of the world, but keep them in it. Do you remember Paul at the end of life? Philippians 1, he's in a Roman prison cell. As he's in that jail cell, he writes to the Philippians who had ministered to his need through Epaphroditus, brought a great gift to him. He writes them back, and he's talking about his imprisonment, and he says in chapter 1, he had a, a wrestling match with God about living or dying. As you read the text, it seems like Paul actually had a say in the matter. I don't understand it. But it's almost like God gave him an option. Do you want to stay or go? Like He's the only one in Scripture that seems to have that option. He says, you know, I've wrestled with it, and I decided that I'm going to stay. You know why? Why does he say that? Because it's needful for you. It's needful for you that I live my life to its full. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul still had work to do. There were saints Paul still had to encourage and edify and pray for. There were unbelievers Paul still had to witness to. There were lashes Paul still had to take for the sake of the gospel. Paul knew that God would know when his last breath should be. This is going to then require protection from the evil one. God's protection. That's the focus of Jesus' prayer in verse 15. As he prays for them, he says, keep them from the evil one. Now I ask you, if you're not to be taken out of the world, but kept from the evil one, how, how does this work? How are you preserved in an evil world? Well, you just have to think then of, of essentially how this played out in the early church. And I do this a lot in preaching from the gospel because it's so helpful. Just think of how this actually fleshed itself out. Well, what happened in the book of Acts? As they lived in obedience to the Lord, they became the foundation of the church. How was it that they were preserved in an evil world instead of taken out of the world? Well, I can give you a few things it doesn't mean. So it doesn't mean that the Father will protect these men from all persecution and opposition. Right? Acts 4 and 5 is, is filled with opposition from the religious leaders. Acts 12, James loses his head, and Peter almost does, in opposition from the king. So they're going to face severe opposition. Acts 12 to 28, the apostle Paul is going to face the persecution of a world that hates his Lord. It, it's not keeping them from persecution and opposition. 
It also doesn't mean that the Father is going to keep them from all internal disagreements or disputes, all problems, even a a severe conflict with one another. You just have to think of of Acts 6, where the Hellenist widows were not being having their needs met like they thought they should, and and they raise a concern, and the apostles are forced to deal with that. You see, God preserving you in an evil world does not mean that the life of the church now becomes perfect. And now we're all good with each other, and there's no problems to deal with. You know that later in in Acts 15, they had to wrestle through, well, what do we do with non-Jews who believe in Jesus? And then the end of that chapter, Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement with each other over John Mark, they separate ways and go separate, on separate missions. And the text doesn't, doesn't commend or condemn either of them. It just says that's the case. That's the reality of it. So preservation by our Holy Father in this world does not look like keeping us from all trouble, all disputes, all difficulties, even in the body. Even disputes over doctrine that endanger the gospel. Paul had to confront Peter in Galatians 2, correct? Why? Because Peter's activity was endangering gospel truth. And so Paul called him out on it publicly and said, listen, you're endangering truth with that behavior and you need to stop. You see, God preserving the church through the world does not mean we're kept from these difficulties. It also does not mean that the Father would preserve them from all infiltration of false teaching and deceptive doctrine. Almost every letter in the New Testament is written by an apostle or one of his protégés to a local church to warn them of deceptive doctrine that's trying to infiltrate the church and take away the truth. Namely, Titus 1, 2 Peter 2, the whole book of Jude, lay plain that there are false teachers, false prophets, false apostles trying to enter into the body on any given day to mar her witness and deceive her understanding. God's protecting work also doesn't look like keeping us from any of those things or all of those things. But it looks like keeping us through all of those things. Now certainly there are many attacks that the evil one has plotted against the church. And as Satan has proposed those plots, God has disposed of those plots. This is the book of Job, Job 1. Satan had a lot more plotting he was doing to destroy Job. God was sovereign over that situation and gave Satan a lot of leash. But he yanked it at just the right moment. Satan proposes a lot of attacks against the church. He he would sift us like wheat and crush us if he were allowed. So God protects us from those crushing blows, but he doesn't protect us from every blow. And as the missiles launched from our adversary against the fortress of truth, which is the church, land and hit their target and produce a gaping hole in our wall or wound or maybe even kill some in our midst, God intends through that to preserve us to strengthen us, to keep us in his name, to protect our faith, though it might cost our physical lives. This is what he did for Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, the first two of the martyrs under Mary Tudor's reign. Known as Bloody Mary, she rose to the throne as a Roman Catholic and 
sought immediately to get rid of all of the Protestant Anglicans in the 1550s. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley became the focal point of her attention and her, her hatred. They were condemned to die in literal flames, burned at the stake in a public place so as to make them an example. And when Hugh Latimer heard that sentence against him in trial, he said this, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. You see, he heard in the court's ruling, his master's ruling, this is how you will die. And he thanked the Lord that he was kept faithful to die in such a way. And it was through this faith in our Lord through the Lord's preserving power that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were delivered safely home. He didn't keep them from the flame. He delivered them through the flame. This also is the testimony of Scripture. This is God's work to keep us, to guard us, and to preserve us in his name. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 as disciples to pray this way, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. This is why Paul asked the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2 to pray that he would be delivered from wicked and evil men who sought to thwart his work. This is why Galatians 1.4 tells us that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Doesn't take us out, delivers us from its power so we can persevere through. 1 John 5 verse 18 The Apostle John, who writes this gospel, will come back to these truths in his epistle and will say this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. First Peter 1 verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 through 5, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. God's faithfulness produces obedience and faithfulness in his church. Then verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ, his Son. Beloved, you, this moment, are secure in the preserving power of God. Therefore, pray like Christ prays. Rather than pray to be immediately removed from all trial, trouble, tribulation, and difficulty in this world, pray that your Holy Father will deliver you through all those trials, troubles, and difficulties into his eternal kingdom as he keeps you in his name. Let's pray to that end together. Father in heaven, we entrust ourselves entirely to you. We are your treasured possession, bought by the precious blood of your Son. We long to be faithful to accomplish all the good deeds you've appointed for us to do. We pray that you would keep us and preserve us so that we would indeed be useful to the very end. We ask it all that you might then be glorified 
made much of for all of eternity, through us and by us. May all praise be to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.